The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company operating internationally from bases in the UK and US. Smarter Grid Solutions DERMS products are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets into the grid and market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over and value from your clean energy assets, visit sgsderms.com interchange. That's sgsderms.com interchange, or follow the link in the show notes. We're also brought to you by NLX, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. NLX serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization at all levels. As a trusted partner for solar installers and developers, NLX provides energy storage, DER management software, and smart electric vehicle charging stations to increase project value in addition to sharing energy service revenue. Learn about what NLX can do for your business at NLX.com. The first solar panel was invented, the first solar PV panel, in 1954 at Bell Labs. It took us 30 years to go from an 8% efficient panel to 20% efficient, and then now nearly another 40 years, and here we are at about 2.3% of U.S. electricity generated by solar. So again, really good news story, really exciting how much solar has come down in cost, especially recently. But the thing is, we don't have 70 years to get all of the technologies we need for the climate across the finish line in the same way. And even scaled up from there. So that's really what we're trying to tackle. We're going where nobody except the wonkiest wonks want to go. The most unloved, least sexy, but most important areas of climate tech, the white space. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm, Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So we spend most of our time on this show talking about what's happening in climate tech, what technologies, business models, what markets are being developed, by whom, how much impact they will ultimately have on decarbonization, what the pathways are to success, what the barriers might be. But there's an equally interesting and sort of opposite topic. It's kind of the inverse of that topic, which is what isn't happening. In other words, where is their white space within this emerging ecosystem, within this market? What areas, technologies, or markets need more attention than they're currently getting? Either because there's an opportunity that nobody has tapped, uh, at least nobody has successfully tapped yet, or because there's a solution that's already in the market that is just underutilized. Identification of those gaps and then helping to fill them in is part of the mandate of a new organization that I really like called Actuate. They're a nonprofit that takes a model that is similar to DARPA or ARPA-E, which itself was modeled after DARPA, out of the government purview and into the NGO domain. They find big challenges, system-level challenges. They try to solve them with big solution sets, and then they try to leverage those solution sets to scale up and to accelerate the adoption of climate technologies. My friend, Lara Pierpoint, leads Actuate's nascent climate program. They have programs in other sectors as well. Prior to Actuate, Lara led the technology strategy team at Exelon, so she's been 
deep inside a utility trying to accelerate technology adoption. She's also worked at DOE. She has a PhD from MIT in engineering systems. She's really deep in nuclear power, which you'll hear we talk about a fair bit, as well as a number of other areas. In short, she's a rock star. And we had a great conversation about where the white space might be today in climate tech, despite all the interest in the sector and how we can go about tackling it. So with no further ado, my conversation with Laura. Laura, welcome. Hi, Shale. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you here. All right. So to start, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, in order to position your microphone correctly for this podcast, you had to stack it on top of a number of books that happen to be sitting around in your house. What books do you have in your room that you stack the mic on top of? You know, it's so funny because as I was sitting down and putting this third book on here, I was like, I am a huge, huge nerd. So I've got bottom layer, the Congressional Desk Book, the sixth edition. So this is an old school edition of How Congress Works. Then I've got Mathematical Methods for Physicists, one of the <laughs> you know high quality texts from my grad school days. And then Microeconomics, Pindyke and Rubenfeld, obviously. So um, I don't know if it gets much dorkier than that, but there you go. Oh, man. I just knew, knowing you, I just <laughs> knew that this was going to be a fruitful question. I, I honestly, I did not have any idea what the answer was. And that's like a perfect answer. It's uh, um, Yeah. <laughs> it's also a great segue into this conversation by it coincidence, is. It is, right? Actually. We're going to talk about probably all of those things, at least in some fashion. Uh, well, very excited to have you on finally. Um, I want to start by talking about what you're up to now, because you recently joined this new organization, Actuate, to, to lead this climate effort that they're running. And it's a unique sort of new private sector spin on something that I think historically has been mostly the domain of the public sector. So why don't we start with kind of an introduction to Actuate. Tell us what you're up to there. And then I think the goal of this conversation is to talk about some of the things that you're thinking about there, which is where is there white space? Where is there open ocean to further innovate and accelerate the transition to a sustainable economy. But first, tell us about Actuate. Yeah, Actuate. So I am delighted to be employee number four at this tiny nonprofit we're calling Actuate. Um, and really, you know, it's great that we're talking about white space today because the way I think about Actuate and Actuate Climate in particular is that we're going after a big piece of white space in the innovation ecosystem for climate tech. And so really what I've observed over the number of years that I've been in a corporate job and in government and in academia is that particularly recently, we've been doing some really great things to supercharge the earlier stages of climate tech. And so you see ARPA-E, you see the Prime Coalition, you see Activate Fellowships, you see longer you know, range capital like Breakthrough Energy Ventures coming into the space. Super exciting stuff. And yet still, I think we're really struggling when it comes to commercialization and scale up and really anything sort of post the demonstration end of the pipeline. And you see that when you look at the scoreboard and you look at where we are with respect to greenhouse gas emissions and where we need to get. There's a lot that we have to do to go a lot faster at some of those later stages. So Actuate is really all about trying to solve some of the systems problems that really plague technology adoption and specifically to do it in this climate tech, this climate context. Um, so, you know, there's a number of things that we're bringing to the table on this, but the basic idea is to use kind of DARPA methodologies and toolkits. And that's what my founder, Arthi Prabhakar, brings to the table. 
The idea here is that we would do big demonstrations. We would really try to move the needle quickly and help supercharge whole classes of solutions so that we can get where we need to go with respect to climate faster. So these are like solutions or technologies that have gone through that first stage, have you know, de-risk the technology in the lab, they're post R&D stage, but you're saying they're not yet like at commercial maturity or at scale. And your job is to try to accelerate their transition to commercial maturity. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I'll give an example. So for, you know, when you take the example of solar, and solar is really one of our best news stories in climate technology right now, right? But the first solar panel was invented, the first solar PV panel in 1954 at Bell Labs. It took us 30 years to go from an 8% efficient panel to 20% efficient. And then now nearly another 40 years. And here we are at about 2.3% of US electricity generated by solar. So again, really good news story, really exciting how much solar has come down in cost, especially recently. But the thing is, we don't have 70 years to get all of the technologies we need for the climate across the finish line in the same way, and even scaled up from there. So that's really what we're trying to tackle. And so for one example, we're really digging into demand response. That's an area where there are a lot of really great technologies, some really cool companies, a lot of pilots that have been done. But we need to kind of convince the utilities and the regulators and ourselves that demand response can be a big part of what we need or what we could use to help manage variable renewables. And so that's something we might try to go after is can we really do a demonstration that changes people's minds around what this is as a solution and then moves it forward? This is sort of jumping ahead, but demand response is such an interesting example of this challenge because it it is somewhat distinct in solar or from solar in that we basically have the or we are soon to have almost certainly the resources the controllable load sufficient to do orders of magnitude more demand response or can you know flexible load than we have today we did we did like a back of the envelope analysis a little while back at eip about this and estimated that if you just look at all the controllable load that is likely to be on the grid by 2025 this is thermostats and water heaters and electric vehicle chargers and grid storage and all that stuff you add up just those big categories together in theory we could shift something like one third of US peak electric load. Like it's an enormous amount. And compared to, I don't know what the number is that actually is like time shifted according to the needs of the grid today, but it's de minimis basically. So, like, there is an interesting distinction there between solar, where it was we just need to put a lot more of this stuff on the grid faster to demand response, where it's like, actually, we kind of have this stuff. We need to figure out how to use it the right way. Exactly. Yeah, that's really the entire trick. I think so. You know, right now across the country, about 5% peak demand reduction is pretty standard in most of the ISOs that we have. There are some that get upwards of 10%. But you're absolutely right. There are studies out there that are showing this could be like a third of our electricity usage that we could tap into as a way to support the grid if we're really able to do this right. But it's not straightforward because you've got humans in the loop. And so figuring out how you harness them, how you get them to do things, what are the right technologies? What are the moments where you actually need their consent to go beyond what the technologies will do automatically? All of this is stuff that we need to work on. And there are folks who are definitely working on that. But we also need to make it clear that this is a big deal, that it's something that utilities and regulators need to focus on. So we can kind of break the cycle and actually turn it from something that no one really believes in into something that we're deploying at scale. Right. I mean, humans in the loop is one one element of the challenge, regulators in the loop is an entire other element of the challenge. And obviously that's, you know, comes back to humans as well. But, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of one example. One of the things I think is interesting about the approach that you're taking with Actuate is, uh, is this focus on the sort of identifying the system level 
white space, right? So it's not, you might think a, a lot of folks, particularly in like Silicon Valley world, hear white space and they're thinking like what business model or what technology, you know, can be created to solve a problem or to meet a need in the market. And there's that too. And we should talk about some of those. But I think what you're describing is like, you know, starting from the first principles of what is it going to take to decarbonize? Where are the big levers? And then what is the system level challenge to pulling one of those levers right. sufficiently? Right. So how do you think about identifying what the system level challenges are? Like, it's easy to say we need a lot of controllable load. It's probably harder to go from that to, you know, here are the bottlenecks to that. And here's how we can use whatever tools we've got at our disposal to eliminate them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we have a specific process we follow at Actuate. And in our case, our real North Star is all greenhouse gas emissions reductions. And there are a lot of different lenses, obviously, that folks can take on the problems they want to solve. There's plenty that we need to do with adaptation. There's other stuff we need to do to modernize the electric grid and get a handle on cybersecurity. But for our purposes, we're really focused on the greenhouse gas emissions reduction question. So we start off by saying, you know, where are the biggest levers to to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's led me, for example, to think about transportation and to say, okay, EVs and really getting EVs on the road seems like a really critical piece and getting a lot of GHG emissions off the table when it comes to transportation. And then the next question is, how do we do that? And then you start thinking about the barriers, find the biggest barriers that are really affecting it. So, you know, there's cost, there's the battery, and there's range anxiety, there's charging infrastructure. And charging infrastructure is one of those really thorny systems issues, right, where we've got a lot of, you know, companies out there that are providing charging infrastructure. We've got companies that are interested in building it and putting it on their properties. We've got cities that want to see more of it. But it's really no one's specific job to make the entire system work holistically in a way that is going to supercharge all EVs. Everybody kind of has a piece of it. So that's part of what we're thinking about is what has to go right everywhere within that system? And are there ways we can try to elevate solutions that will really get it that quickly? Yeah. In the EV context, it's the it's one of the cases why this sort of, I mean, in general, I think it's better to have an open, open ecosystem and we want interoperability amongst chargers and vehicles and all that kind of stuff. I think that's going to be better for the world. But the benefit of the Tesla strategy, which is closed loop ecosystem, is that they do control all of that. And so they can say, let's just make sure that if you own a Tesla, there's sufficient Tesla charging for you in the places where the vehicles are going to be and the vehicles are going to go. And so it is the benefit of the sort of like uh, benevolent dictatorship, you know, type of approach versus the rest of the world, which has to like coordinate with each other, which is a very complex systems level problem, as you said. Exactly. No, it's a big challenge. And I think, you know, the other issue is that when you start thinking from a systems perspective, you might come up with different answers. And an EV system is like an EV charging system is a really good example of that, where we say, okay, everybody wants to charge their cars at night. That's super logical. In a solar-dominated state like California, energy at night is going to start to get really expensive. And so actually, it would be really helpful if everyone charged during the day at their workplaces or at their homes or wherever they happen to be. That actually then supports the grid. That enables more renewables. It enables faster decarbonization, all of which are the goals in the first place with getting EVs on the road. So that's part of what we're thinking about, too, is is there a way to kind of help change the paradigm a little bit so that you're supporting the grid instead of making things more challenging as you deploy charging infrastructure? All right. So we've talked a little bit about demand response, a little bit about EVs, but you and I were batting around some ideas of where there is white space in climate tech right now that we could chat about. And, you know, I think there's so much attention being paid 
to climate tech at the moment, which is a good thing, undeniably, um, but also could then lead you to think that everything is sort of being covered, or at least there's enough attention being paid to everything. So I'm excited about to talk about a few things that are like a little bit unloved, maybe in the broader climate tech ecosystem, but but need some attention. Um, but so you described how, how to think about where there's white spaces being on this kind of spectrum between the need for technology innovation and the need for kind of market development innovation. How do you think about that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, you know, the way the way that I tend to think about it is that you've got a system and you want to make that system work a little bit differently or you want new solutions to exist within that system. And so you've got to make some changes, you know. So is it a question of a new technology that either works around some of the system constraints or that works with them but in a different way, like in a decarbonized way? Or is it about changing the system itself? And so we kind of think about all of that within Actuate as we're approaching a problem. And really everything comes from this kind of problem solving mindset. Uh, and that's where we get at, you know, there are some areas where we think there's a little bit more that could be done in the technology space. And there are a couple things that folks aren't really paying attention to. In some cases where we say, you know what, we really need a different type of market solution. We need a new kind of business model, or we need a different sort of financing structure to make this thing work. All right. So let's talk about some of each of those. So starting on the technology side, like where there is some fundamental technological improvements that would be helpful that maybe are even needed. Um, one that I know is near and dear to your heart and where you have particular expertise is in the world of nuclear power. And you uh, termed what we were talking about ultra-advanced nuclear, which is a term I haven't really heard before. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's some level beyond it of ultra-uber special advanced nuclear. But what do you mean when you say ultra-advanced nuclear? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, when it comes to nuclear power, you talked a little bit about the unloved spaces of technology. And I think, you know, nothing typifies unloved like nuclear power does. Um, it has a few people who really love it. <laughs> that's true. If, if you're, Which if maybe you're, makes up for it. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of folks sort of in the inner circle that are all nuclear all the time. And, you know, good thing we have them. So yeah, when it comes to nuclear power, so we've got conventional nuclear power, light water reactors, basically, um, all across the world. And uh, we're now talking about advanced fission reactors, all of which are very exciting. Um, but, you know, let's take a big step back. And again, you know, I'm taking this problem solving approach when I'm thinking about what needs to happen and where there might be white spaces. So one of the big challenges with nuclear is that it's expensive. That's really kind of what it comes down to. Really, you know, high power density, some really great qualities always on, even at nighttime. Um, but expensive, particularly when you're managing all the safety systems that are required. Um, so again, really amazing stuff is happening in the advanced reactor community right now. Um, some really incredible technical strides, a lot of work with the regulatory community, a lot of attention to cost and cost reduction, all of which is great. But I can't help but sort of look at this whole ecosystem and say that, you know, fundamentally, we've designed the first nuclear reactors to do one thing, and that's to boil water and to produce electricity from it. And it actually works really well, so I don't want to minimize that as a strategy. But there's a whole class of solutions. There are other ways you can harness nuclear power, and this is where I don't see nearly as much activity as I would really like. I think it would be really great to start exploring these questions of how else can you use the nuclear reaction to ultimately drive and produce electricity, and can you do it in ways that are much more direct, because that has the potential to help you really reduce cost. Right, so what are some of the other ways to use nuclear power other than just boiling water to make steam? Yeah, so there are basically two classes of options here. 
One is a set of engine concepts. And this is the idea that you use the nuclear reaction to drive mechanical work and create electricity from that. There are a lot of huge technical hurdles in making that work. When you're working with a nuclear material, you're talking about you know often high temperatures, depending on exactly how you do it. You're talking about managing a nuclear material in a gaseous form, which is non-trivial, although has been done in many cases. Um, so some real, real big hurdles to climb there, but some really interesting possibilities in cost reduction. And then the second class of technologies comes to us from NASA. So this is where we talk about radioisotope thermoelectric generators, which is a set of words that I think only an uber nerd could love, but we call them affectionately RTGs. And these are the kinds of systems that power uh, our satellites in some cases, but really, you know, our probes that go into deep space. And so here you're talking about really low power densities, uh, but you're talking about potentially kind of always on batteries. So these are the kind of technologies, again, that we use in space, we can use in remote applications, but maybe with some really serious technical tweaks, we could actually use them in some commercial applications or maybe even distributed applications. Some really interesting stuff there. And the idea here is that you harness the heat from nuclear decay, and you can use that with thermocouples to produce electricity, or you could potentially drive a potential because the decay products of the nuclear reaction tend to be charged. You've got alpha particles and beta particles, and so you can drive an electric potential directly from those. So again, a lot of, a lot of kind of uphill technical battles to climb there, but I think they're worth pursuing. The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy software provider specializing in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions products manage over 400 megawatts of clean energy assets. Smarter Grid Solutions' Strata Resilience product is a software-enabled microgrid control solution that delivers grid-connected island and Blackstart microgrid functions. Integrating microgrids to bigger grids and markets, it optimizes revenues while delivering supply security. Strata Resilience delivers all the capabilities required for the management of clean energy assets in microgrids, and it's already being deployed and creating value for customers in North America and the UK. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-adding microgrid solutions offered by Strata Resilience, visit sgsderms.com slash interchange or follow the link in the show notes. The Interchange is brought to you by NLX. The energy industry is rapidly changing. Project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek more renewable energy. NLX helps solar partners get more revenue from those projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter by accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions. Find out more at NLX.com. That's E-N-E-L-X.com. I just want to say that my my father, who lives in Wisconsin, uh, periodically listens to this podcast, and I've been trying to, like, uh, every every week I've been trying to get a little bit wonkier in order to one-up the level of wonkiness for him. Um, it's already well beyond him. But I think talking about radioisotope thermoelectric generators, did I get that right? You did. Radioisotope thermoelectric generators. I think we just hit a peak. That's awesome. Um, are those solutions, I mean, just to like boil it down, so to speak, um, are those solutions, you know, potentially better just because they could solve the cost problem? of nuclear ultimately or what's the reason 
to do them, I guess is the first question. Second question is, uh, are they retrofitable on existing nuclear reactors? Are we talking about a whole new class of nuclear generation? Oh, yeah. No, this is definitely a whole new class of nuclear generation. And it's going to look really different from, you know, your grandmother's reactor. Um, we talk about the sort of big gigawatt scale nuclear reactors. That's not what we mean when we're getting to kind of these, you know, direct conversion sort of technologies. That's the class of technologies that includes RTGs. Um, so, you know, again, thinking about the challenges here and what does it really take to get nuclear on the table as something that can contribute to greenhouse gas emissions reduction. It really, in my mind, comes first and foremost down to cost. And that's a little bit of an oversimplification because with nuclear, there's kind of this interplay. You need to have really robust safety systems, and that comes at a cost. So those things kind of you know interact with one another. But when you think about a conventional nuclear power plant, really about you know 80% of the levelized cost of electricity somewhere in that neighborhood when you build a reactor is all about the capex of that plant. It's not the operating costs. And then when you break down that operating cost, what gets really interesting is that upwards of 70% of that cost is in all of the non-nuclear equipment. So we talk about the nuclear island, and that's kind of the core of the nuclear reactor, where you've got fuel, where you've got fuel rods, um, where you've got a lot of the nuclear innovation. But the rest of it, it's safety systems, it's your steam generator, all of that is about 70% of the cost. So this is about how do you really reduce those costs? And we've got some programs to do that. RPE is definitely chasing cost reduction, as is the industry. But at the end of the day, if we can avoid using some of those systems altogether and harness the nuclear power a little bit more directly, that's something that's potentially really attractive in getting nuclear to be cost competitive. That's like, you know, stepping back from nuclear just over and over again in these new technologies, particularly in the electricity sector, the focus for cost reduction has to shift, I think, faster than it does shift to balance of plant. Like this was true in solar, right? It turned out that, you know, these days the cost of the solar module is significantly less than half the cost of the system, right? It's true in lithium ion batteries. The cost of the lithium ion cell is less than the cost of the lithium ion and the, in stationary storage, way less than the cost of the overall system. It's going to be true in hydrogen with electrolyzers, like just over and over again, you know, we spend all this time and attention focusing on the cost and the operating parameters of the core thing. But it's actually the total inclusive cost of the system or the delivered cost of energy off of it that matters. And as time goes on, as you do better and better at driving down costs or driving up efficiency or whatever it might be in that core thing, that core thing matters less and less in the broader context. So it feels like nuclear is just like another example of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we see that over and over. And if there's, you know, one plea I could make for the technical innovation community out there, it would be to spend more time on that. Spend more time on the really boring sort of balance of plant systemy things, even if you think they're done. And I'll give one great example of that. It turns out the cost of running wires is really high. So as I've dug into this question of what can we do to really get a lot of electric vehicle charging infrastructure on the ground, it turns out when you're doing retrofits, the cost of the panel, but really the cost of running wire is what gets you. And it shocks me that we can't do better than this. And what's what's interesting about that, too, is I've also seen that play out in other contexts. There was a project that we were doing at Exxon, a big pilot project at a nuclear plant site, and the cost of it ballooned because we had to actually site the thing that we were doing far away from the electricity load center. And so it came down to the cost of running wire across the nuclear plant. Now, granted, there are more constraints under that kind of an environment, but still, I keep wondering wondering why can't we do better at running wires? Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. If I were to extol the scientific community of uh, one thing, it's like focus on balance of plant earlier in a technology life cycle. 
Um, all right, so ultra advanced nuclear, super interesting, pretty far out there, but has a lot of potential. Let's talk about a couple others quickly, and then we should talk about one or two that are more on the market development side. Um, one other that I know you've spent some time on, on the more on the technology side of things, is on the transmission grid. What do you think is the opportunity there? Where's the white space? Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of opportunity there. The truth is that when it comes to transmission technologies, not much has changed. And in fact, we're still generally relying on 1950s technology for the most part to transport our electricity, especially over long distances. So I'd say there are a couple of classes of technology areas here. The first class I would talk about is really the things that make us do more with the grid we have. And that kind of gets into the communications and data and control and sensor networks that we have the ability to deploy now. So here, I don't know that there's as much kind of technical white space. There are a lot of really cool solutions that are already out there. And I think a lot of what needs to happen is you know regulatory market reform, that sort of stuff to be able to really supercharge those solutions. So the second piece of this is about transmission wires themselves. And there's a little bit of improvement we've made over the years, adding some aluminum, trying out some different kinds of alloys. But fundamentally, we still have about 15% electricity losses, sometimes upwards of that as we're transmitting electricity over long distances. We have another big problem, which is that transmission lines are very hard to build, particularly if you're trying to site them in a new location. So that's why I get really excited about technologies like Veer. And so this is the idea that you can have a high temperature superconductor. They've got some really cool cooling technologies. And theoretically, if they could really get this stuff to work, you're talking about a lot of power over a very small line and maybe even one day shifting so that instead of building big transmission lines, you're building things at the distribution scale. So it just looks like a wire running down the side of a street, but it's transmitting the same amount of power that you get over a big transmission line. That kind of stuff would be really game changing for building out our transmission networks, again, in a way that really supports renewables. That's kind of one example of a class of technologies I'm excited about there. All right, ultra advanced nuclear, next generation transmission. Um, let's talk about one that's maybe, I guess, a little less hard tech y, um, which is, you know, measurement and verification or, you know, climate intelligence technology, let's say. Yeah, we need to do a better job of measuring our greenhouse gas emissions, as it turns out. And this is something that I didn't fully realize until recently was as big a challenge as it is. You know, but again, to kind of scale the problem here. In 2016, NOAA did a study, and they estimated that the developed countries of the world were probably working with error bars of around 5 to 15% in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. And that for the developing world, their greenhouse gas emissions error bars were larger by, quote unquote, unknown amounts. So this kind of you know set of error bars that we're dealing with make it really challenging to think about compliance under the you know auspices of the Paris Accord. Um, there's also some press recently about how cities are probably undercounting their emissions by an average of around 20%. Uh, and even when it comes to something that's seemingly simple, like measuring the emissions coming out of a smokestack, we've got some really high quality technologies that can do that with error bars around 2%, but they're really expensive and they're certainly not ubiquitously deployed around the globe. So that's an area that I think needs a lot of attention is how can we really get much better at measuring both point source and kind of, you know, bigger sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's where there's a lot of effort. I mean, this is definitely white space to the extent that we probably aren't doing an accurate enough job of it, but I will say there's a lot going on there. You know, there's a lot of like satellite data measurement of greenhouse gases, whether from smokestacks or m trying to measure methane leakage. There's sensor-based stuff for a lot of the methane 
type issues. There's um, an increasing focus on soil carbon and either measuring that again via satellite imagery or via you know equipment that you put in the soil. There's there's a lot to be done there, and I think there's no single source of truth either, which is one of the big issues. Like this data is all kind of siloed at the moment, so we as a result we don't have an accurate accounting, and we need both an accurate accounting of how much are we emitting, but also how much are we capturing, sequestering, or removing, right, with various things ranging from nature-based solutions to, you know, uh, direct air capture and all that kind of stuff. So I, I agree with you that there's a need for more there. We certainly haven't solved it. No. And I think and I think you rightly point out that the real issue is actually about consistency. It's about, you know, how do we get these things deployed sufficiently ubiquitously that we can make some apples to apples comparisons and really do attribution correctly. And that's a systems level challenge in addition to probably a technical one. Right. Okay, so let's um, let's cover a couple of the areas of white space that might be, you know, there's obviously still going to be technology development to be done, but where maybe the bigger challenge or the more immediate challenge is more on the market side or the, the market structure side. Um, so what's your take on energy storage on the grid? It's another example. It's sort of in that, you know, you describe the solar trajectory, like we've had lithium ion batteries for a very long time. We've had batteries on the grid for a pretty long time. But and and they're growing fast, sure, but off of a small base. And so we're still in that situation where, you know, the amount of energy storage we have on the grid relative to the amount of energy storage we like to have on the grid is, you know, basically nothing. So what do you view as sort of how do you identify what's causing the white space there and where there's a systems level problem to tackle? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is definitely a two to five hour conversation that we could have just on this alone. But I think, you know, storage is definitely one of those really challenging spaces. A lot of really exciting stuff going on the technical side, a lot more that could and needs to be done there for sure. But yeah, I really see some big market battles that need to be fought. And so I think, you know, again, I take the big step back when it comes to storage and have a little bit of a soap box on this one. I think a lot of times we start conversations by saying we need more storage. But the truth is that storage is a means to an end. What we need are more renewables. And so what we really actually need are more solutions to help manage that grid variability. And storage is one of the most flexible, most important solutions to get there. Um, so remembering that storage is out there, it's competing with natural gas, it's competing with you know overbuilding renewables and adding in transmission, it's competing with demand response. You know we need to think about this again in kind of that broader context. But fundamentally, you know if we're going to get more storage on the grid, which I absolutely think we need, we've got some serious market problems to solve. So give an example of one of the market problems that is holding back energy storage? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for a long time, one of the market problems was that there was, you know, a lack of clarity on the regulatory side around the extent to which you could do revenue stacking. And so what this means is that you've got a storage installation, and sure, it can provide some amount of, you know, backup power in certain situations or could arbitrage, but it could potentially provide other services to the grid too, like frequency regulation. And so this was an issue is figuring out, okay, well, so how much can I really play in one market versus another? Because obviously, the value of the storage and installation goes up if you can choose a little bit and if you can actually provide different services at different times when they're needed. So that's an example of kind of a simple regulatory fix that's in the process of getting done to try to put a little bit more clarity around how that might work. Um, and I say simple, it's actually not because figuring out you know exactly what makes the most sense in terms of markets and how you bid and how you get rewarded when you're kind of looking at different types of services is non-trivial. But I think in some ways, that's actually kind of like a microcosm of the bigger issue with storage, which is that storage crosses all of our silos. 
It's one of those things that, you know, our electricity systems in particular have been built up around generation and then around load. And that's kind of how we categorized and understood things for a really long time. But of course, storage is neither one of those things. It's really both, you know, depending on the time. So one of the big challenges I had at Exelon was that despite the fact that we have a really innovation forward company there, you know, it's really challenging just to even answer basic questions about the potential for storage, because the team that does power marketing is not the same as the team that understands the load and the needs of kind of the distribution end of the grid. Uh, And, you know, at the end of the day, answering simple questions like, you know, what are the characteristics that we need to meet? What are the cost targets that long duration storage should hit? Those are really non-trivial things to answer that require getting people to talk across their traditional silos, even within a company. It's one of the things that my, you know, the exposure that I've had inside of utilities has made me like very impressed by them. I, I know that this is framed and often is framed as a problem with them. It's tough to make innovation happen for that reason. But on the other hand, like the fact that the system works as well as it does, given how complex it is and given how multifaceted any decision is around like the distribution grid and changing the infrastructure, upgrading it, making sure that it's going to be suited to whatever conditions are changing in the neighborhood or the weather or whatever, all the new equipment. Like it's amazing that this, I'm, I'm, eternally astounded that my power is as reliable as it is basically everywhere that I go, given how complex this system is in the first place. Yeah, no, that's true. A lot of credit deserves to be given. You know, and I think within the innovation community, a lot of times we'll talk about, ah, the risk aversion of utilities. It's so frustrating. I know that that was definitely, you know, a refrain that I heard and really often said, you know, while I was in the belly of the beast working for one. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a really good thing that utilities are risk averse, that they're careful, that they manage these things and that they manage change so carefully. Because, you know, we do have this working system and electricity is so unbelievably important to our lives. Right. Okay. So last one. So we've talked mostly about electricity related stuff so far, nuclear transmission, demand response, grid storage. Um, But one other that you mentioned to me when we were throwing around ideas here where there's, you know, some, some white space uh, though I'm interested to hear to the degree to which you think it's on the technology side versus the market side versus something else entirely is cows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now for Let's something talk com- about cows. completely different yeah. from the electric utility industry. Um, yeah. So this is, you know, a path that I started down, you know, when I came to actuate was to look at deforestation because this seemed to me like, ah, oh, there has to be like a no brainer in here somewhere that we've got to keep our forest standing as one way to really, you know, improve our greenhouse gas emissions reduction picture. And the more I drilled down and the more I real dr- drilled down in this, the more I realized that cows are a big problem. They are a huge source of emissions. And, you know, and it, it comes from a number of things, obviously. It comes directly from the methane that they produce. It comes from manure. It also comes from the deforestation that they wreak. And so, you know, we sort of joke about trying to get people to, you know, stop eating red meat. And then you see this strong backlash against that. But when you look at how cows are nearly twice as bad as nearly other meat, when you look at greenhouse gas emissions on a kilogram by kilogram basis, you really start to realize we've got to do something different here. So there's definitely a technical white space. And I think it might have been a company from the UK that recently has invented a mask for cows to try to capture the methane from their burps, which seems kind of insane, but also maybe something that's actually workable. But again, what I keep coming back to is kind of the systems issues here. 
And when I think about deforestation and how that interacts with cattle, one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, when you look into deforestation and you look into the amount of money that we're paying for carbon offsets to try to keep forests standing, that is tiny when you compare that to the amount of money we spend in the United States and in the developed world on products that are producing the deforestation in the first place. So this is definitely cattle farming. It's palm oil. It's products like that that are really driving deforestation. So the most powerful way to attack some kind of system like this is to change it, right? And to say, how can we actually make our forests a more important resource than the cattle that are, you know, the reason that we're doing the deforestation? So I don't have any really grand answers to this yet, other than, you know, potentially we can really lean on building materials and moving from steel to wood, which has its own, you know, greenhouse gas reduction benefits. Um, but, you know, we've got to figure out a way to kind of change the system around this in a much broader kind of holistic fashion and kind of change how the economics of it work if we're going to make a real difference. So clearly cows are like, you know, there's many different ways to tackle the problem, ranging from alternative protein to capturing cow burps to a bunch of other stuff. But it's a perfect example of exactly like the systems level type of challenge that we face all over the place in climate tech and that actuate is actually set up to try to solve. So I guess just to finish off, what's what comes next for actuate? Like obviously you're taking on a big set of challenges. How do you how do you actually go about trying to facilitate solutions to them? Yeah, no, that is a great question. And that is the heart of what we are working on right now. So, you know, as I mentioned, we're really early stages. So we're in the process right now of actually just raising a planning grant to try to answer that exact question. And so, you know, the building blocks, what we have that we're working with, again, is sort of this DARPA-like methodology that what we're hoping to do is to create a series of programs where each program would drive at a very bold goal. So that bold goal could be, for example, 30% demand response, you know, 30% peak load reduction in the context of demand response to support renewables. Um, it could be, you know, getting a certain number of charging infrastructure stations on the road. Um, there are a number of ways we might kind of frame that. But then the idea is to marshal resources and to actually do a big demonstration that shows that that bold goal is achievable. And through doing that to really change the game and move the needle much more quickly than we have previously toward commercialization. So right now I'm in the process of gathering ideas and, you know, would really appreciate anyone and everyone reaching out with areas where we should be looking. Um, but, you know, the idea here is to look and to say, OK, where do we have these big levers for greenhouse gas reduction? Where's there some piece of the system that's stuck that we see some path to unsticking it? That's really our goal. Well, great. We will uh, we'll definitely have you back on the podcast once you've gotten a little further down that road and see how the how the grand challenges are coming along. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining finally. No, thank you. This was really great fun. Laura Pierpoint is the director of climate at Actuate, which is a relatively new uh, R&D nonprofit modeled after DARPA that is designed to solve, as you've heard, system level challenges. As always, we would love your feedback. Give us a rating, give us a review, only good in both cases. Send us feedback privately. In that case, you can yell at us if you'd like. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show. Send us an email um, at contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.